KUCI presents a series of pointers to promote tolerance and cultural awareness. By following these simple steps, KUCI listeners can create a better world for all. Tip number four. Visit a local senior citizen center and collect oral histories. Donate large print reading materials and books on tape. Offer to help with the craft project. For more ways to promote cultural awareness, stay tuned to KUCI. Did you know that car crashes are the number one cause of teen deaths? And that half of all teens that die, die in a car crash. So when you're with a friend and they're driving recklessly, say something. Say something witty like, you don't want to visit from the windshield fairy. Or maybe try a little sarcasm like, forgot where the brakes are, chief? Or you should just be straightforward with your friend and tell them to slow down or stop texting. After all, it could save your life. For more information, visit speakuporelse.com. Last week, my mama served me three bottle caps, half a toothbrush, a zip tie. This albatross chick is starving. A piece of bubble wrap, some weird blue pieces of junk. But he doesn't know it. When wildlife such as the albatross mistakenly ingest pieces of plastic for food, the plastic stays in their gut and creates the sensation of being full. Plastic Easter egg and a really yummy piece of fork. Whoa, I'm really full. Your plastic waste can affect those living even thousands of miles away from you. 80% of ocean debris comes from land-based sources, but are carried out to sea through storm drains and waterways. Reducing this amount of trash starts with you. Buy products with less packaging. Bring a reusable bag to the grocery store and keep one in your car. Choose not to buy bottled water. Fill up a reusable bottle instead. Attend or start your own beach cleanup. And wherever you are, don't litter. Over there? Over there's the water. Whoosh, whoosh. And look at all this stuff I'm standing on. It's called sand, and it's everywhere. This woman may sound silly to you and me. It's made up of little tiny pieces of rocks. Teeny little pieces of rocks. But to her two-year-old son exploring the world around him, <laughs> she makes perfect sense. How does it feel when you touch the sand? Is it warm? Uh-huh. It's hard to hold in your hand, isn't it? Uh-huh. Learning starts long before school does, and children are naturally curious. They want to learn, so follow their lead. Take simple, everyday moments, like sorting laundry or playing on the beach, and turn them into learning moments. Is this water? No. Very good. This is sand. Oh, <laughs> no, no, it's not food. It's sand. We don't eat sand. <laughs> Turn everyday moments into learning moments. Find out how at pornlearning.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good afternoon. It's time for Ear to the Ground. My name is Chandra Amani, and you're listening to 88.9 KUCI in Irvine. Tonight we have just an alarming show, as most of my programs are. We have with us Dr. Christopher Jones with Rebecca's House. Say hi, Dr. Christopher, into your mic there. Yes, hello. <laughs> Thank you for being with us. I also have my guest co-host, Ruben Fernandez. Say hello to Orange County, please, Ruben. Good evening, Orange County. I know you're going to um, enjoy the show. It's, as I said, it's an alarming topic. We're going to discuss eating disorders, sometimes known as ED. The, the little tag I put for this show you know, on the website, we get to turn in our own tags week by week. Just something we want to name the show, just to give people kind of a heads up about what we're talking about. I decided for this one, Slow Dancing with Ed. And of course, Ed is ED for eating disorder. When I started reading about this, maybe 14, 21 days ago, 
I was completely mystified. I was alarmed. I was in the mindset of what is going on. Fortunately, I found someone uh, who seems to be very, 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 very compassionate. I would say no longer alarmed. And um, this is just going to be a very, very interesting evening. Dr. Christopher, give us an overview. What is an eating disorder? So with an eating disorder, one of the things that we see uh, as a commonality with all of the eating disorders is essentially what we have is that there's an incredible amount of self-esteem tied to body image and uh, you know, fear of, often fear of gaining weight, um, a drive for thinness. And it's really this piece that connects to the self-esteem that's, that's in many ways definitional. In other words, one person mm -hmm. might, might you know, want to uh, look a certain way or mm -hmm. you know, have a certain weight. Uh, but with an eating disorder, it's really carried to extremes where there's such a fear, uh, such a fear of not looking a certain way uh, that it can be uh, debilitating as, as a disorder. Dr. Christopher, would a person necessarily recognize themselves by hearing that definition? That's actually a very good question, and we see some, we see some variants uh, depending upon which type of eating, eating disorder we're, we're looking at. Mm -hmm. um, typically, an individual suffering from anorexia nervosa, for instance, um, uh, we hear about anorexia. Typically, that individual will often be in um, denial, often denial is so extreme that they wouldn't even recognize themselves. A person with mm -hmm. anorexia... Um, will often be so uh, malnourished as well that there are even changes in the brain so that they could look in the mirror and see something that doesn't even reflect reality. They could see a person, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, they, they might see themselves as, as overweight or when in fact they might be um, severely and in fact um, diagnostically actually uh, will be uh, underweight. And that's the part... I knew about. I knew about that this type of person would look in the mirror and they would see a gross distortion. Mm -hmm. I think what I'm learning now and what is so troubling to me is that there is just the same level of distortion mentally and emotionally. Yeah, that's a good point. And, um, you know, we see this uh, with some of the eating disorders more than others, but yes, this this mental and emotional distortion, um, you know, these are the filters through which the person experiences them and perceives themselves in that way. And we see this with the anorexia, typically with uh, bulimia nervosa. Okay. Um, the individual will be a little bit more aware of having the disorder in that regard, um, though not always. We see the awareness come... Uh, about their own condition a little bit more around um, if the purging takes the form of vomiting or the use of, uh, you know, emetics, diuretics, laxatives, uh, they might be aware that, hey, you know, I'm doing something that's, <laughs> that's not good for me. But we see other forms of bulimia, such as exercise bulimia, um, which is related about to... about that. Yeah, and that's related to anorexia athletica, too, depending upon, you know, definition you want to use but um, you know an individual might for instance uh, binge uh, you know you, you might have you know uh, a, you know a man or woman who binges on a, a great deal of food and then as a compensatory behavior you might see this individual then go to the gym and 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 work out to the extreme just to compensate for that binge in some way. And then you might see a, a period of restriction or um, avoidance of uh, you know, a sufficient amount of food after that. Now, I know 
and we both know, the three of us in this room know that eating is very enjoyable. Mm. And for the most part, healthy, balanced human beings know mm. right. that we have to compensate with exercise mm -hmm. and eating sensibly mm -hmm. for some of us. So, Dr. Christopher, what may be often thought of, but in fact is not an eating disorder? Help us to draw the line here. Yeah, and actually that's an excellent question where eating may be enjoyable. Eating disorders are ultimately not enjoyable. Okay. So this is one of the things that we see not just with eating disorders. We also see this with chemical dependency, for instance, the you know, variety of um, you know, process addictions, cross addictions, where the thing that was initially pleasurable Right? And an individual will typically start with the eating disorder as a way to feel better or often as a way to control uh, something, at least in their life. You know, if, if you're struggling with an eating disorder, you might have felt a sense of chaos around you or a sense of um, you know, trying to have something that you can control. And initially, it might have worked, and initially, there might have been some pleasure in um, the foods. Mm -hmm. What happens is we tend to see uh, a downward spiral, or if you want to you know, look at it on a, a chart, you might see a, a downwardly progressing uh, spike of some kind, where you get the high, and then you get the low, and then the next high with the you know, say the binge or the purge or the restricting isn't quite as high and the next low is lower. Mm -hmm. So you get a mm -hmm. short-term benefit which eventually dissipates and disappears. So in other words, the overall trend of it is downward such that when a person finally reaches out, when they finally pick up that phone to call, I mean, I work at you know, Rebecca's house, when they finally pick up the phone to call, mm -hmm. they're at a point of desperation you know, they're, they're at a point of really wanting to, to get help. Um, but fortunately, when they're at a point of desperation, that's a point when actually we often um, can help, when they really reach out. When they're ready for transformation, when right. they're ready for change. Exactly. So what started as pleasurable, you know, eating can be pleasurable, and it can be pleasurable again. But by, by the end there, it stops being fun. You know, it started as fun or compensatory in some way, but as a, as a mode of coping. But eventually, it's like your best friend. You know, it starts as your best friend, but eventually the best friend turns on you. And the best friend turns on you, yeah, okay. And that's when you need to get a new set of friends. So. Dr. Christopher, what are the most prevalent signs and symptoms of a person with an eating disorder, or maybe you want to help someone realize that they have an eating disorder. By the way, Orange County, you're listening to Ear to the Ground on KUCI 88.9 FM. My name is Chandra Amani, the host for Ear to the Ground, and I have with me Dr. Christopher. Uh, Dr. Christopher Jones with Rebecca's House, and we're talking about Ed tonight, mm -hmm. eating disorders. Now, Dr. Christopher, help us with this, because I think I want to talk to the young women in junior high, senior high, college. You know, I want to talk to them, but I also want to talk to their best friends Absolutely. and their parents. Mm -hmm. So what are the most prevalent signs and symptoms of an eating disorder? Yeah, that's, a, that's actually a really good question, because... You know, often what we see, too, is that it might not be the eating disordered individual who ends up picking up that phone to call. Mm -hmm. Often it's the, it's the folks in the family system, or it's the, it's the caring friend, or maybe the roommate, um, or, or, you know, the, the partner. You know, it, these are the people who often reach out to help because so often an individual with an active eating disorder um, will be in such denial uh, that they might not even know themselves how, how severe and life-threatening it's become. So typically with eating disorders, you know, you, you will see several signs and symptoms. Um, I mean, you're going to see excessive concern about weight and, and, and body shape. And okay. often you, the individual will have a really distorted body image. Um, if you're, 
if this is somebody you care about or relating um, to, you know, you might hear them say things about themselves. You might hear them say, oh, I'm so fat, or, or this or that, and when in fact they, uh, they're not. Um, so that there'll be some things that just don't seem to really match reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might also witness some unexpected uh, weight loss or fluctuations in their weight. Um, this is very common, uh, though not, not all cases. You might see weight loss that's just not typical uh, for what you would see. Um, also, you know, one of the things that we see both with, um, both with anorexia and bulimia is, um, you know, you, you can have both the purging and non-purging types. And one type of purging that most people probably would be familiar with, with uh, especially with bulimia, mm-hmm. is, uh, is, is vomiting. Um, it's not the only type of purging. It's not the only type of purging? Are you speaking of the other type, like with laxatives? I am. Exactly. Okay, yeah. they're both called purging then. Yeah, you can consider them purging as well, where it's an attempt to, you know, remove the, the food st- substance um, from the body as quickly as possible. Um, so you can see this with the use of diuretics, laxatives, and emetic. So an emetic something to stimulate the mm-hmm. vomiting in that way. Um, but this is all... Uh, this isn't what you would typically see. Um, you know, you wouldn't necessarily see the diuretics, though you might see the laxatives, things like this. What you'd often see is you've just shared a meal together. Okay. And then suddenly your loved one, they disappear to the restroom, or you've just, you're in the dining hall, and suddenly, you know, someone that you care about, they've, they've got to unexpectedly go to the restroom, and, and you don't know why. And this is a, a sort of pattern that you see, is there, why did they disappear to the restroom like that? Um, you also might find food wrappers in the trash, um, an excessive number of food wrappers in the trash. Because of the binging, because perhaps. Because of the binging, mm-hmm. exactly. So that's another thing that you can see. Um, you know, often, often too, it, it, it takes this form of, where did the, where did the food go? You know, who ate, the, who ate the entire jar of peanut butter? Where did that go? Um, and, uh, you know, this often is the result of secretive eating. Um, where the individual would have, uh, you know, the eating disordered individual would have um, eaten in secret as a sort of private shame. And I noticed that in the diaries and the memoirs that I w- I've been reading, Dr. Christopher, that many of them end up isolating yes. pretty badly. Yes. You know, they have friends, they're in a family group, perhaps. Right. But even the older ones, like maybe in college, just out of college, they end up isolating. They, they don't have relationships anymore. You know, someone that can look out for them. That's what I'm getting at. Someone who would notice these things. Yeah, and that's, that's quite true. Um, and frankly, it's one of the things that can make it so dangerous, is that here they have this um, potentially lethal disease, but so often... Uh, an eating disordered individual will have isolated so much that even the people who care about them or who used to be more involved in their lives won't even know about it. Exactly. Yeah, isolation is something um, that we see much more often than not. And, um, you know, by the end, someone, (laughs) when you've got an eating disorder, it's, it's, again, it's like your, you know, your, your sole comfort, your only solace, but even a solace that stopped working. It's a very lonely way of being. And even if somebody seems gregarious or outgoing, they, you know, this, you could have somebody who's on a sports team or um, who seems to be friendly and seems to be social, but inside they're just crumbling. Inside it's just chaos and they feel so alone. And this is what we see. Eating disorders can be an incredibly lonely disease. Uh, where, you know, you get progressively more and more isolated. I wonder what you just said may have, may have triggered something in someone who is maybe struggling with anorexia. As I was reading mm. the books, the stories, the case studies, I saw, as you mentioned earlier, that the person with anorexia tends to be in so much denial. In fact, they feel superior. To other people. Well, yeah, and with anorexia especially, um, we see this a bit more with bulimia, but we can see it with both. You know, if you think about, if you think about, you know, uh, some common personality traits that we often see with anorexia, 
you know, the, the anorexic is often the high achiever, uh, perfectionistic, uh, interested in control and making the grade. And this is somebody who, you know, is just go, 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 and often, you know, very involved in athletics, very involved in action-oriented things, and um, struggles with change. Struggles with change, Struggles okay. with change, mm-hmm. definitely struggles with transitions. Uh, so this is somebody who may make, you know, really extreme attempts to hide their eating disorder. You'll see them bundling up often, you know, wearing extra And wearing baggy clothes. clothes. Baggy mm-hmm. clothes, mm-hmm. yeah. And, you know, there are some signs and symptoms that show up physically, of course. You know, there's, uh, you know, there's even fine downy hair that can um, develop on the, on the body, sometimes even on the face, called lanugo. But, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are things that will show up. But this is somebody who's just driving themselves so hard and trying to control things so much. But even that eventually ceases to work. Often they will come from a family system too that will be very controlling. Uh, You will often see, say, a mom, a mother who's uh, quite involved, over-involved, enmeshed or fused with the daughter. Maybe the daughter has had a role of taking care of mom's emotions. Maybe the daughter has had to step in when mom's been having a tough day and mother the mother in that way. So that's something we see typically. The anorexic will often even be in a caretaking capacity emotionally in a way where maybe she didn't get her needs met, mm-hmm. but she's always having to control and, and control and just try to, try to hold it together. What are your thoughts or comments, Ruben? You know, after hearing uh, Dr. Uh, Christopher there was things that were continually being mentioned about emotions and emotions and emotions and then disease came in. I want to know if, is it an emotional thing that maybe they experienced um, through family that has caused them to think that, uh, you know, this is a way to live? Or is it an actual disease that's going after the body? Well, I think that's an excellent question, and it can be both. I mean, it, and you'll, you'll, you'll see it be both. I mean, if you look at the disease model, the disease model is, you know, about 100 years old uh, in terms of how to define it. If you want to define a disease, you have an organ, and then there's a defect in the organ, and then you have symptoms. So, for instance, if you break your leg, that's the organ. might be your femur. You, the, you know, the symptom, uh, excuse me, the, the defect is the broken femur, and then the symptoms might be pain or, you know, some kind of uh, disfigurement uh, in the leg. Similarly, when we look at eating disorders, where causality is a little bit more complex, uh, it's, it's a little less understood than, say, chemical dependency, but you have the organ, which is the brain, and then you have, what, you know, you can describe as the defect in the organ, which is uh, well, we could, might look at the reward system, for instance, and impaired choosing and the whole dopam- dopamine cycle that happens in the brain. And there's an impairment there where the parts of the brain that really hijack the brain, that take it out of a mode. It's not just willpower we're talking about. We're talking about choosing itself, which is going to happen more in, you know, in, in, in the frontal cortex region. Uh, that choosing part is hijacked by the midbrain. So that's you've got the defect in the organ. So that's why when we look at willpower, those arguments don't really hold water after a certain point. And then you get the symptoms, of course, right, which are some of the things that we're talking about, um, which can be really life-threatening. So if you want to look at it in terms of the disease model, um, it, it matches quite well. As similarly, we see this with, uh, with addictions. It matches quite well. But if we want to look at causality, this is much more complex. And, you know, some of this is... People are still researching this. You know, what are the, what are the variety of causes uh, that lead to an eating disorder? But I can tell you some of the things that we see. You know, because in the field we see that we see a variety of causes. Um, there's research being done right now in terms of is there a genetic predisposition uh, to an eating disorder? And, you know, so far it's looking as if there is, especially with some of the 
um, dopaminergic and uh, serotonergic uh, pathways and so uh, and the, the, the ways the neurotransmitters work so especially with dopamine and serotonin mm-hmm. um, also norepinephrine also being explored um, so it does look as if there's a genetic predisposition but that's just a predisposition if you've got a family system with eating disorders it doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to develop one but you're going to see a likelihood um, which is where you see the predisposition. But you can't necessarily categorize as the cause. Right, and that's exactly the point. So causal factors are typically a lot more complex than mm-hmm. simply, you know, if you break your leg, it's, it's pretty easy. Oh, I was skiing and I hit that pine exactly. tree. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. But if you want to look at the causal factors for something like an eating disorder, you know, you're going to look at the family dynamics. So the family of origin, what were the dynamics in that family system? Um, and what was the, if you want to look at family systems there, you know, what was the multi-generational transmission process, it's called? But what were the patterns that tumbled through the generations where it was necessary or felt necessary to cope, to find a way to cope, to w- a way to feel better, you know, just to get out of the feelings? And what we see is that it's not about the food. It's about the feelings. Really? It's yeah. not? Yeah. It's not about the calories. It's not about the fat content. Right. So ultimately, these things become, in some ways, symptoms of some of the underlying problems. Okay. So if we were to look at it a little bit more particularly, again, if we look at the things that really bind and and unite the recovery community, and not even just the eating disorder community, but the recovery community Mm -hmm. in general, at the core, you're going to get a sense of needing something to cope with the feelings. Hmm. And, and that's words, just what Ruben yeah, was true. getting at. And I think I appreciate Ruben's point in that. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. often you'll have this sense of core, this core sense of just feeling not good enough. Uh, of feeling, uh, you know, we really might talk about... It's a really good point. Yeah, it's, and it's hard. It, you, we, we look, you know, we hear about, we hear people expressing a sense of just feeling not good enough. And, you know, we look at shame-based belief systems and pathogenic belief systems, but at the end of the day, it's someone feeling bad, you know, not, not just having actions that are incorrect or actions that can be corrected, but not just the actions, at the very level of being, feeling not good enough. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that's something that, um, you know, if you think of that as sort of a, a root, root of the tree, it can take expression in different ways. And different eating disorders are going to express themselves differently. Those might be some of the branches of that tree. And so with some of the eating disorders, you're going to see a, a really obsessive calorie counting and obsessive focus on uh, you know, some, of the, some of the specifics with the numbers. And you, know, you, you have somebody bring a scale to the, to the lunch table. Um, you know, always counting to, this. And to weigh their, that. oh yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, to weigh the food. who gets affected the most, Dr. Christopher, and why? Now, you, 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 don't, you don't necessarily have to go into cultural background and that kind of thing, but what demographic or what group of people comes to mind the most when I say, or when I ask the question, who is affected most? by eating disorders, and why is that? So we're seeing a shift, uh, for one thing. Uh, and, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years ago, you might have looked at it and said, okay, it's going to be primarily, um, you know, Anglo-American, young women, uh, you know, onset ages, you know, usually 12 to 14, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit more sure. generally 12 to 25 is one statistic with that. But... Um, we're seeing eating disorders, though, start to affect uh, a much greater range of cultures, backgrounds, genders, orientations. In other words, this epidemic, and again, eating disorders taken as a whole, and anorexia more, more particularly, are the deadliest of the mental disorders. The deadliest. Now, this is a hidden epidemic that's affecting not just Anglo-American young women now, it's affecting, we see, we, we see a diverse and uh, 
you know, wide-ranging group of people, men and women, struggling with eating disorders. Okay, so eating disorders as a whole has the highest mortality rate in, in mental mental imbalances or what mental diseases yeah, mental illnesses yeah so it's uh you know it's 12 times the average so it's it's got the highest more more mortality rate. now listen to these and just comment on these mm-hmm. dr christopher eating disorder statistics general almost 50 percent of people with eating disorders meet the criteria for depression right only one in ten men and women with eating disorders receive treatment. Mm-hmm. Only 35% of people that receive treatment for eating disorders get treatment at a specialized facility for eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Okay, go ahead, because I see... Sad, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. And um, I'd say that these are fairly conservative figures. Um, there are other figures that you can point to where... You know, first you're, the first part that you're talking about, we look at co-occurring disorders... Okay, and this is when you have um, something such as depression or anxiety, um, some, other dis- some other disorder that's, that can be incredibly derailing of the mm-hmm. process if they're not also treated. I mean, we, of course, treat both, um, you know, because you can't just treat the eating disorder. You have to treat the co-occurring disorders as well. So... I mean, at Rebecca's house, we don't just treat the eating disorders. You have to look at the depression and, and treat it uh, mm-hmm. both in, with a wide spectrum of modalities and really the most cutting-edge ones as well as some of the classical ones that, that are proven to be most evidence-based and effective. But here's the thing. It's been, there have been studies that have also shown okay. that, it, that actually that 50% number, I've encountered that one as well, but there are other, other studies that... That show, for instance, if you look at anxiety, you know, that's another common co-occurring disorder, that a full, that approximately two-thirds of individuals with an eating disorder can identify prior, prior to the onset of the eating disorder. So you're saying that... Some form of anxiety, whether it's social phobia, uh, you know, some anxiety disorder. We often see, you know, obsessive compulsive disorders or obsessive compulsive traits. Um, you know, of course, you mentioned depression. You, there are a wide range of things that um, accompany an eating disorder that, if left untreated, uh, can be really derailing. Chandra, Go I ahead, ask, Ruben. I, I want to ask Dr. Uh, Christopher a question. The eating disorder, um, the depression, if the depression is handled first, wouldn't that offset the eating disorder? Yeah, interesting. So, we see the best outcomes if they're both treated. Yeah, it, to use a casual example, have you ever seen the whack-a-mole game at fairs? Have you seen this? I, I don't it's think you, I you, have. You hit, you hit one mole and another one comes I got out. You. No, you I've, never seen, I've never seen it. You've never seen this? I've, I've, I've seen, no, no, I've seen it at Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> okay, Chuck E. Cheese. Perfect. Exactly. <laughs> so, it's a... <laughs> it's a casual example, but the thing is that if you just address one of them, then you're typically typically going to see it express itself otherwise. You know, it might be that somebody starts out with uh, an eating disorder and depression, but then you know you start to address one of them, and you might see something else arise. Somebody might start with an eating disorder and develop, for instance, uh, substance abuse or alcoholism. They, so um, it's important to treat all of the issues um, uh, concomitantly. Otherwise, it can be very derailing. Two, you know, here's another part of it where if you're just treating the depression, the eating disorder itself will be having negative effects on the mood. Gotcha. And similarly, if you're just treating the eating disorder, the depression itself can lead towards relapse in the eating disorder. So and really even just our discussion both. here is just so complex. Mm-hmm. And I can see why you were designed to do this, Dr. Christopher. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you have many other plateaus to reach in your life ahead. But, you know, how could anybody possibly, they're panicked. The mother is at her wit's end. Sure. The partner is, like, scared out of his wits. Right. 
you know, and you have to explain all of this. Well, and here, I really appreciate you mentioning, too, some of the lived experience and the lived suffering of not just the eating disordered individual, but really those who love the eating disordered individual, Mm -hmm. those who care about them. It's a disorder that affects not just the person, but the family system, yes. but their friends, but, 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 you know, by the, the people around them. So, you know, we see families and friends and spouses and partners, you know, come in at their wits end and they've been struggling and trying to make sense of something that just doesn't make sense. And we see them come in and it's a beautiful moment, frankly, when, especially when their when their loved one starts to starts to turn a corner and starts to really see the severity of the problem and starts to become willing uh, to get help. Yeah. yeah, that that is probably a miraculous moment right there. Yes, we're going to take a little break, Dr. Christopher Rubin. And uh, by the way, we have Kelly Vegas on the line. Kelly, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, we can hear you. And uh, when we come back from the break, we're going to take a break, Kelly. When we come back from the break, Orange County, we're going to talk about specifically Rebecca's house, uh, maybe cutting-edge therapies, the different modalities, the different, I don't know, just thinking that, that has evolved in Rebecca's house. So stay right with us, Kelly, and we're going to listen to a few announcements, and we'll be right back. KUCI presents a series of pointers to promote tolerance and cultural awareness. By following these simple steps, KUCI listeners can create a better world for all. Tip number four. Visit a local senior citizen center and collect oral histories. Donate large print reading materials and books on tape. Offer to help with a craft project. For more ways to promote cultural awareness, stay tuned to KUCI. Did you know that car crashes are the number one cause of teen deaths? And that half of all teens that die, die in a car crash. So when you're with a friend and they're driving recklessly, say something. Say something witty like, you don't want to visit from the windshield fairy. Or maybe try a little sarcasm like, forgot where the brakes are, chief? Or you should just be straightforward with your friend and tell them to slow down or stop texting. After all, it could save your life. For more information, visit speakuporelse.com. Last week, my mama served me three bottle caps, half a toothbrush, a zip tie. This albatross chick is starving. A piece of bubble wrap, some weird blue pieces of junk. But he doesn't know it. When wildlife, such as the albatross, mistakenly ingest pieces of plastic for food, the plastic stays in their gut and creates the sensation of being full. Plastic Easter egg and a really yummy piece of fork. <coughs> Whoa, I'm really full. Your plastic waste can affect those living even thousands of miles away from you. 80% of ocean debris comes from land-based sources, but are carried out to sea through storm drains and waterways. Reducing this amount of trash starts with you. Buy products with less packaging. Bring a reusable bag to the grocery store and keep one in your car. Choose not to buy bottled water. Fill up a reusable bottle instead. Attend or start your own beach cleanup. And wherever you are, don't litter. Over there? Over there's the water. Whoosh, whoosh. And look at all this stuff I'm standing on. It's called sand, and it's everywhere. This woman may sound silly to you and me. It's made up of little tiny pieces of rocks. Teeny little pieces of rocks. But to her two-year-old son exploring the world around him, (laughs) she makes perfect sense. How does it feel when you touch the sand? Is it warm? Uh Uh-huh. It's hard to hold in your hand, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. Learning starts long before school does, and children are naturally curious. They want to learn, so follow their lead. Take simple, everyday moments, like sorting laundry or playing on the beach, and turn them into learning moments. Is this water? No. Very good. This is sand. Oh, (laughs) no, no, it's not food. It's sand. We don't eat sand. (laughs) Turn everyday moments into learning moments. 
Find out how at pornlearning.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. All right, now we're back. By the way, Orange County, you are listening to Ear to the Ground. Ear to the Ground airs 5 to 6 on Mondays, so always listen in with us here at KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And if you want to call in, just please call in to weigh in uh, with your issues, your comments, your concerns, your frustrations, 949-824-5824. Now, I wanted to introduce my dear friend, Kelly Vegas. Kelly, now, Kelly, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, good. Hi, Kelly. Thank you for calling in. I really appreciate your support. Now, I don't know if you've been listening to the show, and it doesn't matter. I know you're a very, very busy mom. We were talking about the overview, just getting an overview of eating disorders. And then Dr. Christopher was um, just explaining all of the complexity that goes into this disorder, the symptoms, the signs, um, who gets affected the most. So now, Kelly, before we focus on Rebecca's house, and, and I know you're going to comment on everything that Dr. Christopher says, but before we do that, before we dive into what is Rebecca's house and why is it so different in the world of eating disorder treatments, tell us just a little bit about yourself and um, why you feel qualified to weigh in here. Um, well, thank you, first and foremost, just for having me on the show. Um, it's you are privilege. Um, Well, I struggled with um, anorexia and bulimia starting at about 14 and a half, mm-hmm. and um, my struggle lasted um, for uh, over six years when it was pretty severe, and um, within that time, I was um, in treatment five different times inpatient and had a heart attack and um, also tore a hole in my esophagus, and um, it just destroyed my life at that time. And after when I was 19 and um, finally able to um, start walking in recovery and um, making that way and that journey towards being able to um, kind of be where I am today um, has been a long journey, and so I know that um, Dr. Christopher would agree it's not something that happens overnight, but um, now um, where my heart is is going back and just um, talking with um, young girls and boys that are dealing with anorexia and bulimia and wow, trying to share great. my experience and um, try to give them hope and just, just to come on the same page as them and help them understand where I know where they're coming from from the standpoint of someone who's walked in their shoes. And, um, and kind of try to also comfort and add, offer encouragement to the families and the parents and just anything that I can. And so um, living in recovery now and being able to see on the opposite end of that, that it can be done. And, you know, for an anorexic or blink, you're not going to be extremely overweight or, you know, you don't get fat and all these different fears that, um, you get overwhelmed with, you know, what does recovery look like? Um, it's just been a blessing to be able to try to offer hope and help to those that are walking through this right now. Go ahead, Dr. Christopher. Well, I'm just really hearing, um, lots of things that, uh, of course, give me encouragement. I wonder, how is it for you to share your experience, strength, and hope? Do you find that really reinforces and strengthens your recovery by connecting with, um, you know, another individual in recovery that way? Oh, um, most definitely. Um, It has been actually the best thing in my recovery, Mm -hmm. has been able to be going going back um, and, and talking to these um, women and, and coming alongside them and hearing their pain in the, in the pit and in that yeah. despair and, and then being grateful that, oh, my gosh, I totally remember being there, mm-hmm. and I'm just so grateful that I'm not there right now. And it just kind of strengthens me even more. It gives me more of that firm foundation of when those thoughts try to do kind of creep back in every now and again and the different triggers. 
and I'm able to look back at the different people that have been placed in my life and and be like, well, I, I'm so grateful that I'm not there and it does strengthen my recovery. And it does also give hope to the, um, the girls that I've been able to come alongside and kind of shepherd and, and just be able to be blessed to have in my life. And um, it's just amazing the friendships that come out of it. Does that sound strange, Dr. Christopher, that she would find strength in sharing this publicly? How do you feel about that? Now I feel like a therapist, but how do you feel about that? Having, having dealt with so many different types of individuals and situations. Well, I feel encouraged, actually, because one of the things that I'm hearing in Kelly's story is that, of course, um, there are severe medical symptoms, and, um, and this is what we hear. And, you know, I also hear that it wasn't your first treatment episode. One of the things that we say at Rebecca's house is that, uh, you know, it might not have been your first treatment episode. We, heard, we hope it's your last, in other words, um, to really do it right so that it's recovery for a lifetime. And one of the things that I hear that's really key in your recovery process is that you're giving back and staying connected to recovery community in that way. Um, I, also, I see. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I also hear this attitude of gratitude when you're doing it. Uh, and that's actually part of the recovery process. You know, when an individual enters recovery, often there's this time of, uh, you know, and we even have a phase system based around this, uh, but there's a time of discovery. You know, just okay. discovering what are the issues that I'm dealing with? What are my struggles? What am I working on and striving towards? And then, then we have a phase two, and that's mm-hmm. when some of the, you know, it brings it to the baseline in some, in some way, and you start doing that deeper work which is really an awareness phase. You're developing the awareness of what's happening and you're really developing and enhancing the coping skills that are going to be much more functional. You know, you're healing some of those inner wounds. Often there's trauma mm-hmm. that's uh, comorbid with the eating disorder. And it's comorbid, what does that mean, it, Dr. It, it, Christopher? It occurs along with it. It, it comes along with it okay. in some ways. Now, 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 let me interrupt here. I, I, I want to ask you and Kelly this and comment on this because I've been reading the books, the memoirs, the, um, the journals, the rehab diaries, things like that. Both of the young ladies of whose memoirs I read, as they were going into treatment, One was in treatment because her parents just gave her the ultimatum. One was in treatment. She was a little bit past college age. She just realized that she couldn't go on. They both went in with so much cynicism. I'm telling you, they were so rebellious, so angry, so much wanting to hold on to what they felt they had. But yet on the other side of their brain they knew they were losing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that we see that a lot too. Um, the varieties of resistance are really quite understandable. And, you know, we can have some compassion for, you know, what you describe as the cynicism, but also really the resistance that comes with it. Because imagine, imagine the eating disorder has been your, you know, it's, it's been your, your, your only coping mechanism for a long time. It's been your best friend in that way. And then, and then you realize, wait a minute, that stopped working. Oh, oh my, what am I going to do? Okay. And so we often see a lot of resistance uh, to the recovery process, even with the eating disorders themselves. There can be such a, a rigidity and a fear of change. We see fear of change so much and often, you know, and I appreciate, uh, you know, I appreciate, Kelly, you're, you're talking about, your early years when you're 14 and a half, one of the things that we often see is, uh, again, the most common time we see eating disorder surface is in that 12 to 14 range when mm-hmm. often puberty is onset and there are a lot of changes going on. And that can be, can be so scary. And, you know, often the eating disorder will be a response or an attempt just to control something, maybe even delay in some cases the onset of puberty because it can have that effect too for some individuals. Sure. So it's this, you know, it's, the, it's this response just to hold on 
you know, I can't fault somebody. It would be hard for any of us to, to, to fault or blame or uh, somebody for having some resistance uh, to getting help. But, you know, one of the things that we say, and we really see this, we're not bad people getting good. We're sick people getting well. And this, this is a, a, an incredibly serious, an incredibly dangerous medical condition. And in some ways, it's a hidden epidemic because yeah, you've got the deadliest of the mental disorders. You would think it would be presented every night on Thank the you. television. Yes. You, would, you know, you would get all this exposure that, yes. oh my, this is an epidemic, but rarely do we see it addressed head on. And more often than not, we see it reinforced. Mm-hmm. by a variety of media presentations. It's we see reinforcement, yeah. Now, Kelly, let's let yeah. Kelly weigh in on this. Kelly, what is your comment to me reading these memoirs, and I see these young ladies, a lot of their families, they're absolutely devastated, mm-hmm. you know, and the one who wasn't in her family group, she was a teacher, she was a student, and... All of her relationships were bombed out. And so now they're going into treatment. They figure out ways along the way to constantly deceive the counselors to, to binge and purge. So what do you, I mean, you can imagine for me, it was just like, mm. whoa, these are some very sick right. people. Yeah. Um, the first, you know, the first four times that um, I went into treatment were against my will. And so um, Dr. Kirster was completely right. You know, the, um, they was, I was put in under um, the doctor's care and my parents, and they kept putting me back in. And I knew how to work the system. It was against, um, I wasn't ready to give up my best friend. It was my identity. It had become who I was. And I didn't know what it would look like if I didn't have my eating disorder. Um, I didn't, that was my coping mechanism because my life was spinning out of control. I, you know, it was, it's not just one trigger, you know, it was a multiple triggers. It was, you know, my parents' um, divorce at that time. It was, mm. I, you know, changing into a young woman. That's a hard thing when, you know, you're growing up and you're, you see your body changing. It was, right. um, the date rape. I was raped as a virgin and I didn't tell anyone right. and I kept it a secret. Mm-hmm. And so it was all these things and everything was out of control and this was the only thing I can control. Right. And so as it was working for me, then someone's going to put me in a place, you know, um, you can talk to a lot of people that have anarchism, but believe me, they're very, very smart, cunning people and they know how to look you in the face and tell you exactly what you want to hear and then go back and do what they need to do to get it done. And that's the scariest thing. Now going back in and trying to come alongside families and offer them encouragement because I can look these young girls in their eyes and go, I know you're lying to me. (laughs) And and because I was you. And then I'll say, this is what you're thinking. This is what is going on through your mind. They go, how do you know that? Go, because I was you. And so that's the hardest thing. And that's the hardest thing when I have to tell a mom and a dad. I go, you know, um, yes, they need to be inpatient because if they don't even get any liquids down, their electrolytes are going to be off, they're going to have a heart attack or, you know, they're at risk for all these other things, kidney failure. But the same token, it's not going to promise you they're going to come out, you know, um, and, and not relapse because if they're not ready to give it up, they're not ready to let go, you know, you're going to be down this road again. And that's the hardest thing, I think, as um, for parents. And it was for me, and it wasn't until my fifth time when all my friends had gone off to college. When I had I had totally broken those relationships with my sisters, my mom and dad were completely broken, and I was so alone, and I wake up in the morning, and it, my eating disorder was controlling me. It was no longer working for me, yeah. and now it was controlling me, and I was scared to death because I thought, okay, I'm going to be one of those people that's going to die from this. I'm going to be one of those lifetime eating disorder treatment people, and I don't want this life. So that's when I finally checked myself in, and then I was willing mm-hmm. to work the amazing programs that these treatment centers have and work it to the point where the therapist and the counselors need you to work it and not just give them what they want to hear. You know, that's wonderful, Kelly, and it's really, it's really reminding me, at some point in, um, in the depths of your eating disorder, was it beginning to feel as if both the outer world as well as the inner world was beginning to feel chaotic and kind of out yeah. of control? And that's really what we see so often. I mean, one of the things that, one of my favorite things about Rebecca's house is the structure that we provide and encourage, 
both externally and and we have different levels right i mean you're not going to have um just a, you know an intense structure the whole time but a trend a transitioning transitioning levels of structure so that you can have that kind of support and clarity that matches uh what you would hope to have internally and one well, i love that about rebecca's house because i yeah. i recommended people to Rebecca's house because I love sure. your phases of care oh, and I love how you wonderful. offer Well, I didn't know you had heard about Rebecca's house. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. And all that other stuff because yeah. I remember the fifth time when I went in and I remember um, after intake sitting down and I felt like I could breathe mm-hmm. because I knew, okay, yeah. I don't have to worry about the food. I don't have to worry. I mean, it was like finally, okay, I just let go. Absolutely. And it's like that's what they do for you. That's where when you're at that point why it's so important because you know how it's just like this this monster living inside of you, and it's right. finally like, well, if you go in there, well, they're they're now coming alongside of you, right. standing side by side, getting ready. They're they're fighting the battle for you, and now you just have to be willing to walk alongside them. <laughs> right, you and, don't have to battle the monster alone. And, and yeah. let, let me get in a question here, and Ruben, if any thoughts are coming to mind, but I, I wanted to ask this because you can imagine me a person in my position I'm starting to read these books and you know I'm mystified and kind of spooked by the anorexics and I'm grossed out by the bulimics and I'm angry with the bulimics you know I'm I'm just like why are you doing this to yourself you know because all of us get to that point at some you know at some moments where we kind of gag you know maybe you put your toothbrush too far accidentally and you kind of gag so you feel that feeling maybe this is a woman thing because dr christopher is really looking at me strange but you know and so you realize how forceful and how and how terrible vomiting is and and, and and I just I'm just I just get angry with them for doing their little bodies like that over mm-hmm. and over and over again and then fighting, you know, their parents get them into treatment, very expensive treatment probably, mm-hmm. and then they're fighting to keep the same behaviors. Well, it was it, it's it's really been quite a journey for me reading these books. Oh uh, yes. You know, um sorry for looking at you funny if I did. It, what was occurring to me was that it, that's part of, that really speaks to the depth of the suffering that's occurring with, if you're talking about the purging behavior. Now, we can see purging both with anorexia and bulimia, by the way, also eating disorders, not, mm-hmm. not otherwise specified. But um, that purging, that the suffering comes to such a point, and there's such fear of, say, gaining weight or having you know, the body uh, become different in some way, there's such fear, crippling fear, that it would lead to not just purging sometimes. I mean, we can easily get people who are purging um, many, many, many times in a single day. In a single day, and, right. Yeah, and so it's not just um, once when, you know, let's say you've got the stomach flu or something and it's uncomfortable. And um, No, the purging behavior, um, if we're talking specifically about the vomiting, uh, can, it becomes compulsive in this way in itself. So it becomes mm-hmm. a coping mechanism that uh, works at first in some very limited and, and difficult and, you know, way, but then it just gets worse and worse and worse, and it's really getting trapped on this uh, roller coaster that's headed downhill and quickly. Now, Dr. Christopher, let's back up. When you talk about coping mechanism, I think I want to clear this up. And, and the way that I, I finally understood that clinical term was, believe it or not, when I was reading about this person who had begun cutting. You know, right. I was reading one of the, the eating disorder diaries, and she had had to get another coping mechanism, and she began, you know, the, the razor blade cutting. Right. And it was in such graphic terms, but if I can just say it on the air... She put the razor blade to her arm and she cut through, you know, till there was blood, of course. She said that was a freeing thing. So I think what I want my listeners to understand is that when Dr. Christopher mentions a coping mechanism, that's something that makes them feel free. It, it, it gets them... At first. Okay. And so Both of you talk about that, please. Sure. So what we see in terms of coping mechanisms is we hope to facilitate the transition... Um, 
from impaired coping, coping mechanisms, uh, whether it's cutting, whether it's drug use, whether it's uh, the varieties, you know, binging, purging, restricting, whatever the coping mechanism it was that's impaired somehow, it's impaired because over time it gets worse and worse and worse and it stops working as much. Okay. What we really hope to encourage and what we do encourage in, in treatment at Rebecca's house is uh, healthy coping. We're really headed much toward integrating modes and techniques of healthy coping. Now, it might start out, and I really appreciate Kelly's story because, you know, Kelly, some of the stuff that you're talking about in terms of reaching out to um, talk to another eating disordered individual, there's some healthy coping in that. I bet when you do that, you feel better. Other things we might look at are journaling. Um, you know, often it's, uh, it's spiritual practice, spiritual or religious practice, uh, prayer, meditation, things where the mm -hmm. more you do them, the better, better they get. Better it gets. Yeah, exactly. So th these are things that typically require, there's a bit of a learning curve for most of them, right? You know, if you have, you know, if you're sitting down and there's a chocolate cake on one side and a journal in the other, you might get the short-term fix from the chocolate cake, but the long-term solution from the journaling, from the prayer, the meditation, from the reaching out and working your program, calling, say, your sponsor, working the program in some way. Kelly, what do you say about that, the, the chaos that is created by these behaviors and, and how grossed out and spooked, you know, the loved ones are, you know, as they experience this with the young woman or, or even the man who is captured by this eating disorder? Um, so I'm, I'm not sure if I, I understand the question. What do, what do I have to say about the people that are on the outside or how I cope with it? Or No, no, what, um, just, just what is your comment? Because I think I'm, I'm... Well, coming from being anorexic bulimic, so bulimorexic, um, I can tell you that um, the, the, when, you, when you start to throw up, it is gross. You're gagging. It's disgusting, but it's a release. And um, for me, I didn't know how to deal with my feelings, and so it was a way to um, get rid of them. And so after a while, just like anything, your body acclimates it to, to it. I didn't have to use a spoon. I didn't have to gag myself. I could just, on reflex, just throw up. So when I was throwing up, you know, over 30 to 40 to 50 times a day, it, even when if I drank water, it, it, it became my coping mechanism, and it wasn't anything I thought about. So someone on the outside, which they had, they did, my sisters and my mom and dad, I don't understand, I just don't understand how you do it. Well, when you're beyond that point, you're not on a rational state of mind, and, you're, and on top of that, you're physically so dehydrated, and you even kind of get a high. I remember passing out so many times after throwing, after all these vomiting episodes, right. and passing out on my bed after throwing up, and just being happy that I didn't feel, I didn't feel anymore. I didn't feel the pain that I was causing my family. So uh, it's like layer after layer. So in the beginning, the different triggers, and they become other things. Because now, okay, now I've been causing my family all this, this pain, and now all these people are talking about me at school, and now I have this, and now I have that. So, you know, it's, it's feeling after feeling after feeling. So after an episode of throwing up, and I'm passing on my bed because I've just thrown up so much, I'm happy. Mm -hmm. So now the, let's let Dr. Christopher wrap okay. up. Kelly, we're yeah. going to have to get off the air in just All a few right. seconds. Okay. Well, Kelly, I appreciate you sharing about that. And one of the things that we see is that this, you know, what at first is a, you know, not a great high, but a sort of high, we have decreasing returns. You know, usually when folks get to a point of desperation, um, they, there's a real opportunity for their family or friends. And if your family or friends, please, you can call for your loved one um, to reach out and get help. Uh, we can do free assessments, you know, someone can come in and do the EDI-3, which is a, you know, uh, an assessment that addresses all sorts of issues. Um, if you want, give a call at 1-800-711-2062. Uh, you can call that number, or um, let's see, what's a better number? And this is rebeccashouse.org. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's how I found them. Thank and, you. And uh, just stay tuned. You can still look for that other number, Dr. Christopher. Stay tuned. No, I found it. It's 1-800-711-2062. All right. Well, you've been listening to Ear to the Ground. Uh, be back with us on Mondays, 5 to 6. Evan Simon's going to be handling dreads, the Dread Zone.
and he'll be with us in just a few moments. So stay tuned. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks. KUCI presents a series of pointers to promote tolerance and cultural awareness. By following these simple steps, KUCI listeners can create a better world.